Hey everybody, this is Chris Hewitt. Before we start the actual podcast, before we do the theme tune and bangly bang and all that good stuff, uh, just a very, very quick note that uh, this podcast was recorded on Thursday, uh, July 13th, 2017. Uh, in the intro you are about to hear, we talk about uh, how Army Hammer is going to be a guest in this week's show. Um, after the podcast was recorded, sadly, Army Hammer had to pull out of the podcast uh, for due to unforeseen circumstances. Uh very, very sad. So there is no Army Hammer in this podcast. Uh, however, we do have an interview with the director of Cars 3, Brian Fee, and the producer, Kevin Rayer. And we also have an interview with Jason Blum, who is a producer, of course, at Blumhouse. He's the guy behind all sorts of uh, in- incredible low-budget horror films like the Purge trilogy and the Insidious movies and the Paranormal Activity movies. And he's had a cracking year with the likes of Split and Get Out, uh, doing incredibly well, both critically and commercially. And he came into London a couple of months ago and talked to me. So that interview, uh, which is designed to coincide with the release of Get Out on digital download, and very, very soon, July 24th, on DVD and Blu-ray, will now play in place of the Army Hammer interview towards the end of the end of the uh, podcast. So there you go. Just a very, very quick note to let you know what to expect. Um, I had to pop into the room to tell you this, so there you are. You're up to speed, and now I'm going to get out of this room because it's been freshly painted, and there's no air conditioning, and I'm worried I might pass out. So here you go. Enjoy this week's podcast, episode 271 of the Empire Podcast. Empire Podcast this week is pedal to the metal time as Army Hammer pops by to talk about Cars 3. And hey, Froom for one more? We also chat to that film's director, Brian Fee. And Froom for another one? Producer Kevin Rayer. Ah, talk about the Pixar of the bunch. All that and more on the movie podcast that thinks Torque was great in the monkeys. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. This week I'm joined by two colleagues of such... Lethal cunning, both of whom, this is a true story, emailed Donald Trump Jr. to set up important meetings last year. I didn't know this came out this week, huge revelations. Uh, first up was our geek queen, who set up a meeting with, with uh, Minnie Trump to uh, show him oh-so-cute pictures of the puppy she's been looking after. It's yeah. Helen O'Hara. That's true, Yes. How did he take the, the pictures? Um, he literally physically took the pictures mm-hmm. and wouldn't give them back and then threatened the life of the puppy. Ooh. What? Yeah, it was pretty intense. That's amazing. As your lawyer. Yeah, yeah. He threatened to big game hunt it on the African plains. What? the puppy still. Tell us about this puppy, Helen. Uh, I have been uh, s- uh, puppy sitting for Sylvie, who belongs to Caroline O'Donoghue. Hello. And, uh, and she's extremely small. She's does, a Jack Russell Terrier. Does Sylvie warrior. listen to the podcast? Sylvie does listen to the podcast. Yes, Caroline doesn't, but Sylvie does. Okay. Anyway, she's she's a little Jack Russell Terrier, and she's about the size of a shoe, and she's adorable. That's you just showed me some footage of her ripping (sighs) Mm -hmm. the um, Marlon Brando like. What animal is it from Zootropolis? I believe it's a shrew, Shrew. an Arctic shrew, ripping it literally limb from limb. Yeah. Which was I haven't met Sylvie. Very cute. I haven't met Max. Molly Richards, puppy. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's because nobody likes you enough to show them, show you their dogs, I guess. I've met them both. Delightful really? dogs. You've met them, Phil, haven't you? Say yes. Yes, I have. Yeah, you say yeah. Yes. Several times. Phil has. Several times. Variety of locations. Got shut out. 
Shot in the dog jamboree. Tough. Business. Anyway, next up is our uh, art house guru. You've already heard him. Oh, Chris, cheer on up. The podcast. Hey, next up is our art house <laughs> guru. Uh, you've heard him already. Uh, and he set up his meeting with uh, Donald Trump Jr. to uh, give him some red-hot Russian intel. Isn't this right? That the complete works of Andrei Tarkovsky are available <laughs> as a box set. How did he take that news, Phil DeSemlin? He took it very, very well. He was excited. Yeah. Of course, well, he knows those films already, inside <laughs> out. He knows them intimately. Christmas viewing at the Trump household. What was it, what's his favourite? What, uh, what's Donald Trump Jr.'s favourite Andre Tarkovsky film? Are you putting me on the spot to make a Tarkovsky joke at incredibly short notice? <laughs> if anyone um, can, you can, Phil. Come on, Phil. Um, Come on, Phil. We all know you're, you're a Tarkovsky stalker. Oh, oh, good. Come on, man. Good. That Come was, on, man. That was too easy. I missed Pick it. it. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, all right. Is that it? Do you have yeah, it? No. <laughs> <laughs> I thought okay, we yeah. moved on. All right. All right Make right. Solaris great make, again. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty good. Thank you. I like yeah. that. That's good. That's not bad. See? You see? That was, that was easy. See? Where have you been, Phil? You haven't been in the podcast for a while. I haven't. What's happened? Well, have I? I don't know. I mean, I don't think you I have. haven't. No, I haven't been in the podcast for a while. Well, we had. Um, uh, I had my first child. Is this your first appearance since you became a dad? Yeah. Is it? Yeah. Hey. Is it? Oh, that's right. Yeah. We, we oh. paid, we paid tribute and, and said hello to DeSemlin Jr., oh. but you weren't actually here uh, at the time. Clementine. Clementine. Of my darling fame. And uh, she's been to see her first movie already. Well, which was? Baby Driver. <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> yeah. She went to see Baby Driver last Friday. What Friday was her take? Um, she didn't like the ending, mm. but she was asleep. Right. So the harshest critic of all. <laughs> no, I don't know what I take. Well, she's only nine weeks old, but I haven't seen it yet. So she's beaten me to see Baby Driver, um, ah. which is a bit. Depressing. So did she just go? Did she go on her own? Or, I presume she went with her mum. She went with her mum. Okay. Yeah. Right. She went with her mum. This is and, good. Yeah. So uh, it's good, and also to continue the art house lineage. Yes. Um, we, I have a, 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 a the um, that original Metropolis poster up on the living room wall. Yeah. And she just loves staring at it. So <laughs> I'm feeling like... A chip off the old block. I'm feeling like maybe, Aww. yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Aww. I hope so. I think she just likes the contrasting things. Mm. Babies, babies are like, like that, black and white, yeah. I don't think she's a particular fan of um, sort of Fritz Lang's work. Well, yeah, I mean, she so might Specifically, be. but yeah. I feel like you're not giving her enough credit. Oh, maybe she is. I don't know. She seems pretty advanced in these areas. But yeah, but, yeah no, so I haven't been Has on the podcast, but I'm very glad to be back on the podcast. No, it's, it's good to I have you I missed you guys. Have you been well? I had to Google you before I did, did the you? intro because I'd forgotten who you, who you were and what you did. But uh, it's, it's good to have you back, Paul. It is Paul, isn't it? Uh, has <laughs> it changed your life, Phil? Has it changed your life? Well, being back here, on the podcast. I'm not, I'm not a, <laughs> being back on the podcast. It has. Because I hear an awful lot. I'm not a dad myself. Not a know of, eh? No, I'm not. Uh, uh, has it changed your life? I hear an awful lot of people say that, that the minute that you cradle the baby in your... And we will talk film stuff soon, I promise you. Yeah. But, uh, that the minute you cradle a baby in your arms, especially if that baby's your own, yeah. that it changes your life and you go, oh, it's a baby and now I am, I am beholden to this baby and no. I must protect you forever. Not do you, really. Do you feel that? <laughs> no. You cold, unthinking succubus. Of course it changes your life. Yeah. yeah. Suddenly you become responsible for for a tiny, tiny thing that you yeah. have to look after all the time. And there's no, you know, there's no time off from that Much process. like looking after Sylvia, I imagine. Very so, much so, yeah. 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 Um, it's amazing. Same, yeah, same age, amazing. actually. Nine weeks as really? well. Really? Yeah. Right? Really? Okay. Mm. We've got to get these two together. Right, we like should get the, them together. Key master and gatekeeper type situation. <laughs> I think that would be an extraordinarily messy idea, Chris. Almost a quote. That's pretty good. Well, it was. I was. I know. It was good. It was Thanks. good. I know. It was. Uh, it was okay. very good. I liked it. 
bit of banter, bit of repartee. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, does it give you something to live, you know, to live for as well? No, <laughs> no, but well, before I was just clanging, clinging on. No, but we're in this world now, Phil. Where podcast a podcast, uh, you know, I, I you know. So how did you want to go with this? You know, the climate is changing and we have politicians going nuts uh, on both sides of the Atlantic and we have middling footballers going for between 40 to 55 million pounds. I mean, which I know Helen has strong viewpoints on. Oh, so strong. The world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket. And I imagine Mm. just having that that, that little girl just to just to focus on and protect yes. and love yes must give it's you special. must give your life I'm not going to lie it's really special and we love her dearly um i have like you know three kind of maxims one is just to be calm around her all the time two is just to love her unconditionally and the third one is to introduce her to the works of Ingmar Bergman <laughs> and i'm actually so far i'm on course for all three because we've already watched wild strawberries um late at night calmed wow. down very quickly indeed yeah, or, or just bordered to sleep. Whatever. <laughs> uh, so yeah, no, it's it's been amazing. But I'm glad to be back on the podcast. And, uh, it's uh, good. It's good to have you. Yeah, it's, it's very good thanks. to have you. Um, and uh, yeah, and don't be a stranger. All right, should we get on with some film stuff? That would be cool. All right, so we have we have uh, we have a, a question or a number of questions from people. Uh, so basically, today um, Scott Weinberg, yeah, you know the mm-hmm. American film writer and critic Scott Weinberg on Twitter, he was having a discussion uh, that I kind of joined in, where he was saying that essentially he was saying that Jaws is a great film. We all agree with that, and it is not diminished in any way by the fact that the sequels that came after it are terrible. Yeah. Increasingly terrible. Jaws 2 is pretty decent. Jaws 3 is bad. Jaws 4 is one of the worst movies ever made. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he was having that discussion. I, I leapt in as well, and some people came back to us, and so I asked for some people to formulate it as a question that we could discuss in the podcast. So Daniel Day, 34, uh, says, do shite sequels or prequels diminish originals? So Daniel, he just cuts through the crap mm-hmm. there. You know. uh, we have Flashheart, 88, says, comparisons with agent effects aside, can future movies possibly make brilliant films less brilliant or awful films less awful? And this has been something that's been on my mind recently, so I thought it would be nice for us to discuss because... I don't want to get into spoiler stuff here, but there's a development in Spider-Man Homecoming uh, that I know someone on my Twitter feed was saying he thought diminished a a development along similar lines in Captain America Civil War. Mm. So the question essentially is, can, does a sequel, can a film, can an original film stay pristine and untouched and brilliant even if the sequels dive off a cliff? I think sometimes it can take a little while um, so the Matrix sequels were one of the great disappointments of my film going lifetime because I went nuts for the Matrix. I think I saw it seven times in cinemas. I was extraordinarily hyped the whole way f- up to 20 th- 2003, uh, looking forward to these sequels. And they just, I just find them frustrating and baffling and not as impressive. And, and they took away somewhat from the elegance, I think, of the original film mm-hmm. for me. And it took me a little while to kind of get past that and go back to the Matrix and go, yeah, it actually was really, really good. I think sometimes you have to give it some time and then go back to the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a different thing, but after seeing The Love Guru, I had to go back <laughs> and re I'm not kidding, and rewatch Wayne's World and Austin Powers to see if they were ever funny. Were they? Because they were. But like yeah. after the Love Guru, I was like, was I kidding myself? Like, was well, it, yeah. could this guy ever have been funny? It's the thing because the Love Guru uses a lot of the same tricks. Yeah, that but they, Austin Powers in particular uses very much so, and yet they totally don't work. Utterly charmlessly, just awful. Apart from maybe the Mariska Hargitay gag. Mariska Hargitay, Mariska Hargitay. <laughs> Apart from maybe that. 
Really? Maybe. That's your and, exception. And doesn't doesn't someone say mispronounce the word cunt? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I can't think why that would be funny. Uh, I'm sold. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. so sometimes it, it, I mean it it sometimes takes that short term hit. But I do think that a great film is still a great film, and if you go back to it, you will be reminded of that um, sometimes. But it sometimes does take a revisit to kind of reset your clock. There's two things, though, right? I'm just doing lists today, aren't I? But there's two, mm. like one is that the sequel is just so terrible that it's that it's general melodrousness envelops the first film again. Mm. The Matrix being a good example, and the, and the second is that the sequel introduces a plot point or character point that makes you feel differently about the character that yeah. you loved in the first yeah. film. Um, of which I can think of virtually no examples. Of the top <laughs> well, of my head. I'll tell you what. But there um, are plenty here's, of them. Here's a good Give one. one yeah. The Star Wars prequels. Yeah, but no, right. but that's different. No, but they're not really because what they do is they take the baddest badass in the galaxy and make him a whiny little boy. No, agreed. But I was going to go on to the prequels as a different thing. Okay, sure. Because I think sequels much less than prequels. Because by, by definition, they've happened afterwards. Yeah, sure you can live with live with them in a way mm. that you can't with prequels because they take you into you know the terrain that you love well here's here's uh, here's one that we talked about a little bit a, a couple of months ago um this may be a spoiler fast 8 rehabilitates a bad guy mm-hmm. I, I won't go any <laughs> i won't go any further than that but a bad guy who's supposed to be really 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 bad yeah suddenly becomes like a charming wink wink rogue and that Genuinely, really undermines the whole beginning of Fast Seven. Well, that well the whole of totally, Fast Seven, the whole of Fast Seven, and totally the end of Fast Six. Yeah, like yeah. really badly undermines them. Yeah, and that actually is. I really enjoyed watching it, but it makes no sense, and it does affect the storytelling of the earlier films. That's a That's, good example. I, yeah, I don't think this is a, uh, this is a definitive thing. I mean, I. <laughs> Having said, I said pretty definitively on Twitter today, I said, bad sequels slash prequels do not diminish the quality of the original in any in any way. Mm. And I kind of do believe that for the most part. I think there are exceptions. I think that's a good one. Fast Eight's a good one. Uh, and I've said on this podcast in the past that Aliens, one of my favorite films, yeah. that the end of that, the adrenaline rush I got at the end of Aliens, and apologies if I'm repeating stuff <laughs> a little bit, but the adrenaline rush I got at the end of, of Aliens as they were punching it, through the atmosphere as the, the facility explodes behind them and they get away in the nick of time and yep. the, the music builds, uh, is diminished slightly knowing that everybody who gets away at the end of Aliens dies about 10 minutes later in film time at the beginning of Alien 3. Yeah. Uh, or just dies in Alien 3. Yeah. Spoiler alert for Alien 3, by the way. Uh, but I think, I, think, I think you're right again, Helen. I think time gives you a little bit more perspective mm. and stuff. Uh, and I think that if you take Alien and Aliens in particular, and these are two films that are, that are uppermost in my mind at the moment, because Ridley Scott seems to be determined to go on this sort of anti-phallic-dictorian tour of the Alien movies, and Prometheus and Alien Covenant are not great, but I don't think they diminish the original in any way. I haven't revisited Alien and Aliens fairly recently. I think they're great films, yeah. and I think Alien 3 is its own thing, and it doesn't affect Effect anymore the plot of the of the movies that came before. I think ultimately what you can do is have your own sort of personal canon. Okay, so you saw, let's say, Alien Three mm-hmm. that one time, and you were annoyed by that development, and then you can just decide you're not going to watch that one again. You're just going to watch Alien and Aliens, and you know it's freeing. You know, let let go of the things that bind you to bad plot choices. Let them go. No. 
<laughs> you only get mad about them on the internet. Well, I mean, that's that's the other option. Yeah, the Godfather and Godfather 2 are not diminished by the Godfather 3. No. Mm. Correct. No. But prequels, to my mind, often yeah. do. Because they, 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 these are great films that begin in the middle of the story, you know, with the Imperial Star Destroyer going over the camera or, um, you know, they're on the planet terraforming yeah. an alien. And you don't... The mystery is that you don't know what came before. I don't want it kind of blueprinted out in the way that the, the, the prequels did in Star Wars or, or Alien Covenant and Prometheus have done. Those are all the things that I'm not interested in, you know. Mm. Um, that, those, fran- that, those franchises weren't built on that level of kind of... Is it? Is that changed? Because you know, usually... Is it changed because it's Ridley Scott doing the prequels? Because sometimes you get retconning and sometimes you get... Uh, Reconning is the practice, by the way, of kind of backpedaling, reverse engineering something about a character or a situation in order to fit in yeah. with new information. First, first 15 minutes of, of The Last Crusade. Right. But here's the thing. The first 15 minutes of The Last Crusade, I think, are brilliant. They're really funny. We'd never seen that before. That's exactly right. And, was, it, was, yeah. and it was wonderful. And it was witty and it was, and it was hilarious. And, oh, that's why he's afraid of snakes. Oh, that's why he's got a scar yeah, on his yeah. chin. Oh, that's why he uses now, a whip. But now every, every bloody film is yeah. doing that. It's so funny. I watched that last weekend and that's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, in a film now, I would hate this. I yeah. hate that everything, they ticked every box on the hat and the whip and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> because every film does it now. But that was the first time I think I'd seen it, really. Yeah, and it was, it was just so much fun at that point. But I think it stretched to a whole film length. It just feels... It just feels wrong. It feels like I don't need to know why he wears a waistcoat. I don't know, need to know why he has a thing. And, and you know, there have been certain films in the past five years where they have gone into so much detail in the prequel mm. of every aspect of a person's life, and it's just like, I don't need it. Oz the Great and Powerful was a particularly egregious example. Oh. Not a terrible film, and we love Sam Raimi, obviously, but mm. the whole point of The Wizard of Oz is that you don't... Like, he's just this mythical being and then you see you discover that he's actually you know Mm -hmm. just a bloke behind a curtain so taking him and giving him his whole backstory just completely defeats the point of the character and it's just tiresome really Um, does it it detract from The Wizard of Oz at the time if we'd had this conversation a few few weeks after that film came out I would say maybe it does a bit yeah because it Mm. sort of changes a little bit about how I feel about it but now sort of forgotten about it. Really. Well, that's the thing. The good ones last and the bad ones yeah, don't. So. so, But obviously some people mentioned, have mentioned the Han Solo film as being a worry. Well, I mean, you and I have talked about this mm. um, from the day it was first mooted as a possibility. And I said, I don't want to know his origin. I like that he just turns up and he's that guy. Um, the only thing that's in, holding my interest about that is that there are great people involved in it still great people involved in it and I, and therefore I hope and trust that it's going to be a mm. great movie but yeah as a principle as a pitch mm. I would fire that out of a cannon <laughs> someone else my mentions uh, sorry I don't have your name because I'm not looking at my mentions right now but someone else mentioned Die Hard uh, saying that in Die Hard 5 terrible 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 film does that diminish Die Hard? no, no. it doesn't and absolutely doesn't for me uh, Die Hard 6 which has a prequel element might do so yeah maybe 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 prequels can can in some way affect the quality of the original but I'm with Helen in this I think if you give things enough time then the quality of the 
original or the quality of what came before, mm. I think will we'll seep through. Does mm. Ghostbusters 2 overshadow the glory of Ghostbusters? I still like Ghostbusters 2. I'm like your I brother. Like, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm okay with Ghostbusters 2. I'm only this is just a wind-up. Oh, come on, <laughs> It's just a wind-up. It's come not on, so bad. But for example, the plot of film we can't talk about in Spider-Man Homecoming, mm. for me, doesn't diminish what went before in Captain America Civil War in terms of a certain character and that certain, certain character's that relationship. Other, yeah. Doesn't diminish it for me at all. Uh, uh, dramatically, that's what that character was going through at the time. And that happened kind of off screen. And this is something else that's happened off screen. We've, we talk about that in a way that actually yeah. is understandable in the Spider Man Homecoming spoiler special. So I think I nailed it just there really? now. You, you yeah. think that was clearer to I, anyone? I understood what I was talking about. Well, it's. Didn't, that makes one. So. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. We, anyway, have a, have a look at the film and check out the spoiler special for that. Uh, yes, as Helen says, we do have a Spider-Man Homecoming spoiler special, and that is available right now to be downloaded straight into your ears uh, on our iTunes, SoundCloud, wherever it is you can get the Empire podcast. Uh, and if you want to see us do our thang live and in person, uh, we're going to be appearing an, uh, at the London Podcast Festival on September 16th, which we're very, very excited about. Uh, we're going to be appearing on Saturday night. It's quite a late one, but if you fancy partying into the small hours with the Empire team. <laughs> That's not going to happen. But we will be there from about 9 to 11 or so. So come on, just hang around. We may have some biscuits, little some spot prizes, that sort of stuff. Where is it? Uh, it's going to be at King's Place in London at the London Podcast Festival, which is an amazing uh, thing. It's in the second year and it brings together uh, some of the greatest podcasts in the world. I'm not putting ourselves in that bracket by any stretch of the imagination but some amazing podcasts like uh, so John Hodgman's going to be there you're going to have my dad wrote a porno are going to be there uh, it's going to be really really uh, interesting Is so going to be an Anchorman style fight uh, there might be you never know you never know see how just see bring how, your trident just in case oh, well, yeah, okay. see how I punchy I'm feeling on the night really but uh, if you want to go if you want to go along to the URL which is and I never get this right and I will today kingsplace.co.uk uh, you can uh, sign up for three events for the for the fifteen uh, percent off. Say fifteen percent off when you book three or more London Podfest events. That's very very exciting. So there's all sorts of great stuff there. Uh, take a look at the lineup and do come and see us as well. Don't forget to see us. See other great people as well, mm-hmm. but come and see us too. Uh, and if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast and regular shows, you can do so by a number of ways. Uh, we're on Twitter at Empire Magazine use the hashtag Empire Podcast you can Facebook us as well Empire Magazine uh, or you can email us podcast at empireonline.com or you can wait for an argument to break out on Twitter and then I'll just amend that into a question but that happens very rarely uh, right time now for the first of this week's two Cars 3 related interview slots uh, so Cars 3 is obviously the third in the I believe, I believe it's Cars Cars trilogy is this, is this right? Cause, cause, cause trilogy. Cars. Uh, I don't really watch Top Gear. I don't know how to pronounce it. Cars, uh, including a Subaru. Are you mocking my brother? <laughs> you mocking Nick? A Subaru and a Toyota. Um, so it's it's all very very exciting. Uh, but John Lasseter is not in the director's chair this time around. <gasps> uh, Disney and Pixar's chief number one guy. Uh, he has handed the directorial reins to Brian Fee and the producerial reins. Is that a word? Sure. Uh, to Kevin Rayer. So uh, they were talking to Ian Freer uh, earlier this week. Actually, they weren't. They were talking to him tomorrow after this happened. So they may have killed him. I don't know. This interview may have gone disastrously wrong. So it's exciting. Fingers crossed. Enjoy. Not fingers crossed. What? Why Do you really want the director and producer Cars 3 to kill a man who's been with Empire since the year dot? No, I'm saying fingers crossed that doesn't happen. 
Well, that wasn't. It clear. didn't sound that way, Philip. Oh, it sounded sorry. like you were hoping that they would unleash merry no, hell no, upon no, no, Ian no, Freer. No. We don't want that to happen. Ian's got work for me. <laughs> He's got to go afford to lose him tomorrow. <laughs> Let's hope that doesn't happen. Next week. We can afford to lose him next week. Okay. All right, here we go. So it is uh, Brian Fee and Kevin Rayer talking to uh, Ian Freer. Enjoy. Uh, we're delighted to welcome to the Empire podcast uh, Brian Fee and Kevin Rayer, the director and producer of Cars Free. Guys, welcome. Hi, thank you Hi, for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, you've been working on this film for six years, I believe. Right. Pretty close. Is yeah. there a big like car-shaped hole in your lives now? <laughs> <laughs> and now it's empty because we're done making the film. Um, it's it's it, we're it's all consuming, you know. Like uh, you know, I I live, breathe, and sleep. Um, I would wake up in the night, kind of like every night, wake up really early in the morning with thoughts and ideas or, or concerns. Yeah. So, you know, it is kind of, uh, I don't know what to do with myself now. Right. Uh, the film's actually done. <laughs> it took a year out of our schedule, so it would have been a seven-year movie. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> and then when, when you started the project, was it a kind of conscious effort to go back to the feel and tone of the first movie? Definitely. We we wanted Lightning McQueen to be the lead or to be the star of the movie, and we went back and wanted the tone and some of the emotional depth that Cars 1 had. Right. Uh, and they wanted that to be a part of Cars 3. Right. And what's the feeling now about Cars 2? Do you feel like a, an interesting departure for the series? How do you feel about Cars 2? Yeah, I think that it was always John Lasseter's intent to do a spy romp and make it fun and and feature uh, uh, Mater. Mater more in as a lead role. And, yeah. uh we just decided we'd go back to, to Lightning. I think it's it's fitting, you know, if Mater's going to be your main character, I think, you know, Cars 2 is a very fitting movie to, you know, follow the adventures of Mater. Um, but yeah, yeah, returning to McQueen as the main character, was it was pretty automatic. And um, were, were there other ideas you had for the movie? I think I, I read somewhere that you had M- McQueen go to L.A. at one point. Really early so, on, yeah. We, uh, um, tell me the, about that. Well, er, well, really early on, so... we. We never know what the plot is really going to be. We know, you know, we're inspired by certain emotional things that we're trying to communicate. But um, at, at one point, the movie took place entirely in California. Right. And instead of Route 66, like the first film, we were have McQueen going down Route 99, um, which is a farm, which is a, a vertical um, road that cuts right through the middle of California, goes through all the farming communities. And um, and at one point, we had a scene in in. L.A. This is my favorite scene, that we, the deleted scene, which was where uh, Sally and McQueen go to a uh, L.A. Hollywood party in this really cool set, and they run into all these actor cars. So there was Kit from Knight Rider, and there was the Ghostbusters car, and Herbie the Love Bug, and the Batmobile, and it would have been a clearance nightmare. So it, would have, it would have been so much fun. The, the Ghostbuster guys, the Ghostbuster car sold real estate. Who are you going to call? You know? yeah. And because they were all actors, right? They would be actors in our world. So we had yeah. uh, we had the young, um, we had the old '60s Batmobile talking to the '90s Batmobile, you know, and the '60s Batmobile was just saying, "I don't know, I just can't get into work anymore." And the old, the newer. Batmobile was just you got to reinvent yourself. It's just <laughs> it would have been so cool. That is very cool. <laughs> but alas, it didn't fit with the story. So right. that's how these things go. And what about um, Cruz Ramirez? Is it true that she kind of started to he? Yes. Yeah. So what, um, what's the story now? Really early on, um, even back when I when I before when I was talking about the movie and uh, taking place in California, um, we had a character Cruz Ramirez that would kind of come up under McQueen's, you know, wing. Um, and it was just a it was a male character for really for no reason. It just was a male character. Maybe it's just the first tape, you know, 
first place our brains went to. Yeah. And on, later on, uh, we started looking at our film and we noticed that there are just a lot of men in this movie. You know, it's <laughs> like, like in a, um, we, it's not really what we wanted. Um, it's not really our intention. We really pride ourselves on, on this movie being for everybody. Yeah. And you know, we try to be as diverse as possible, not only with the cast, but just for the story. And I go home every day to two young girls. Yeah. You know, and I've been working on this what's been six years and I would, you know, and our writer kill Murray has a daughter and, and quite frankly, all of our, all of our writers have daughters and, um, nobody wanted it to just be just this male dominated movie. Yeah. Um, but, but more than that, we also wanted a strong character for our daughters to look up to. Uh, so it became an opportunity to try changing the gender of the character. And, and then we didn't quite expect when we did that, that how that opportunity would just keep opening up. Yeah. Up, because then we could pour our own lives into it. Like oh, Cruz, uh, Christelle Alonzo, who plays Cruz, yeah. her own actual backstory of how she was growing up in a border town in Texas. And she was a female and Latina, and she wanted to be an actress and a comedian. And her mother was telling her that we don't do that. We don't do, don't dream about things like that because that's not for us. <laughs> and we wrote that into the character. Yeah. Um, and, and then I would have dinner with my kids and and I, all the conversations we would have that would come back and it would influence you know the fact that my kids were afraid to try things that that uh they um, didn't think they would be good at yeah and, that, and the way they would hold themselves back and they were assigning things are for boys and things are for girls and if they because of society or whatever however they deci- they decided these labels if they decided something was for boys that's not for them and they're not going to do it yeah and all this stuff makes its way into the film you know as now we're looking through a different lens. But it's interesting though, isn't it? Because it feels like a, a reaction to very current concerns, but yours is a very slow ship to turn, isn't it's, it? You can't, yeah. you can't, you know, yeah. we go back years on this, yeah. um, but I think it's what we're reacting to for this character. We're not reacting to politics or anything that's happening right now. We're yeah. just reacting to the actual world around us. You know, like, like, like I said, I've got my daughters and, I see the world a little differently with with two daughters. I I start to see their perspective and I see what they take in and how it affects them. So that's my own uh, barometer, I suppose, of of way of looking at things that I didn't used to do. Yeah. And do I see in the end credits that Hamilton is Lewis Hamilton? It is. You know, um, Lewis Hamilton is a charming guy, a lovely man, and he had been in Cars 2. And so the producer of Cars 2 said, you know, I'm getting emails from Lewis wanting to be in Cars 3. (laughs) And I had actually come to London years ago with the original producer and met uh met lewis and pitched him cars too so i had known him so i wrote him and said you know we just don't have formula one here in <laughs> in the south in south in the states it wasn't gonna fit so but we can i ask you a question we have a computer and yeah. then then i had to ask him so how would you feel about if we called it hamilton uh so we have a siri type series type computer that's hamilton and he's awesome in it he doesn't yeah. get an action figure this time around but yeah, he doesn't well if you buy the cruise toy i guess you could think he's in there somewhere yeah. Yeah, but and is he comfortable acting is he is yeah, he, yeah? You know, he has a good time yeah and he and he what was cool was he said i i want to do this you can call it hamilton but i want to come to pixar and record and we're like, sure. Okay. And so he went, and he was very generous with people getting pictures and and because we do have a number of Formula yeah. One fans. Yeah. Yeah. Pixar. Yeah. Cool. Um, Brian, uh, this is the 
this is not only sort of you're following in John Lasseter's footsteps. It's also his baby, isn't it? It's kind of it was kind of this original story came out of his family and that that, that kind That's of true. thing. Yeah. Is that an added pressure? How is that? That's terrifying, isn't it? Um, I didn't start wearing Hawaiian shirts. No, <laughs> yeah, but I I also it, it was you know I think. For me, the most pressure that I put on myself was the fact that I I was going to direct a movie, that and I never directed anything before. So right. it's a bit of a end of the frying pan. There's no time to like grow your sea legs, you know. Like, yeah. um, I have to somehow grow my sea legs very quickly, you know, without without losing the. Every, I don't want it to, you know, the whole studio thinking, "Oh my goodness, this guy doesn't know what he's doing." Um, <laughs> so. And, but as, but I came to Pixar in the first Cars film, so I've been there on, on, for all of them. I've worked with John on all of them, so I know the characters. I feel like they're family. You know, it's like yeah. uh, it's like a family re- reunion to to work on the film. Um, I had been working on the story for a while, so I was I was the story is very personal to me, and and um, and I was able to even make it even more personal. You know, once John asked me to direct it, so. I wanted to do it. So yeah. my only real hiccup was the fact that I haven't directed anything before. Right. It's kind of a big hiccup, <laughs> right? Um, so, but it's like what, it's like anything else. Okay, well, how do you get past that? How It's not, how do I, what am I going to say no? You know, so um, I identify what I don't know how to do, what I'm not familiar with, which was a lot of it, and then start learning. Start asking people. Start asking the leads that are experts in that field. Start asking other directors what they wish they knew. Yeah. You know, it's just filling that that curve, you know, as fast as possible. And what surprised you about it? I, well, you know what surprised me is I used to think, you know, I was a story artist at Pixar for a long time, and I used to think the director, to direct any of these films, you know, I'd look at Andrew Stanton and Brad Bird and John Lasseter, i think, oh, they, these guys must be geniuses. It's a very, very, very difficult undertaking. Um, a lot of pressure. Um, they've got to somehow come up with answers whenever, when nobody else knows what to do. And I, I used to think that has got to be the hardest job in the world. You must be a genius to have to do it. And now I realize you don't have to be a genius because it's not all on you. You have a crew around you, right? And you have the support right. of the studio. No one's ever doing this by themselves. And when you can lean on people, and it's amazing what they will do when you lean on other people and ask them for well here's the situation we're in what do you guys think and when you let people do their job and and encourage them to help you solve the problems it's amazing that they're no longer just your problems this isn't always interested me when you're uh, the makers of a pixar film do you get any say in the short that plays in front of it not really you know the, no. the short I've, I've produced three shorts for pixar and you know the shorts are done in the sort of dip between productions Right, um, and then the the direct uh, who, people have ideas. They sort of bubble up, and they present to the brain trust or present to John Lasseter, Pete Doctor, and one selected. Um, but you know, it's just coincidental that Piper was at a beach and Dory was it was with Dory, and we have Lou, which is in front of right. three, um, which is a bullying story and and very sweet. It just. We have, we have a bully in our film, too. We have a bully in our film. But I guess like, there must be some thought given to the tone of the films that they're putting in front of. There's really <laughs> only one short that's ready. Right, yeah, when, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, it's necessary. You know, it's yeah. not like there's a bunch of shorts that are in the can waiting and we can just right. select which one. There's only one that's going to be done. 
yeah. when the movie's ready to come out. Because they, they do start and stop. Uh, you know, we, we, we give them a crew and they work on it and then we take the crew back. And You're right. We give yeah, them yeah, yeah. The crew, a yeah. different crew and they take it back. So yeah. I'd love to think that it's plotted and, and really high, about. High, high intellectual answers. <laughs> <but it's not. laughs> no, okay. We barely can get them done. It's, one, one thing I think the Cars universe seems to provoke more than any other kind of Pixar film is kind of existential theories about logic. Have you read these theories yes. about about uh, yes. what's, your, what's the weirdest theory you've heard about around this? What's movie? going on inside of the heads of these cars? And yeah, what you know, happens if you're you on the window? You have a school bus, so where are the children? <laughs> <laughs> it's that thing, isn't it? They, they, presumably, like, the cars have doors because it would look weird if they didn't right. have ha- doors. Have you ever seen somebody that that has shaved off their eyebrows? Yeah. Well, it's yeah. you know, I must say, I don't know right away. I'm not quite sure what's different, but something is different right yeah that's what it would look like if they didn't have doors if they didn't yeah. have door handles you wouldn't they wouldn't look like cars and as the metaphor doesn't work unless we fully see that's the thing we expect yeah yeah i guess the kind of, the overarching theory over the past couple of years is that the, all these films are connected in some way have you read that one have you come oh, yes. that? we're yeah. well aware of that's it's it's entertaining um <laughs> <laughs> and that's all it is if, if you, you know you look in the sky long enough you'll see the cloud that you want to see um <laughs> I mean, I guess you know, yeah. BNL. If you watch our film, BNL, there's a track that's sponsored by BNL, and so we we are we pepper each of our films with our own whatever companies and assets from other films as a way to entertain ourselves. Yeah, because it's to, to us, it's just our own little in joke to say, hey, it's that thing from it's a thing from Toy Story and out showing up here. Um, Pixar, you know, the Pixar plant, the Pizza Planet truck is a, is yeah. a, always in our films. Um, but really, it's just us, just a, it, having fun. There's no, um, there's no, no common thread through the whole. No. There's no actual yeah. one. It would no. Um, and you know, think hard enough, and I guess. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, one of the things that Pixar is famous for is this ability to figure out when something isn't working and just completely have the balls to reinvent it. And that's that's an amazing quality, isn't I it? That, 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 again, the best directors, and I include Brian in this, having been in development and seen a lot of directors come through um, is a willingness to blow up the story yeah. and not just say it's good enough. Um, and, you know, like I say, we had multiple, multiple versions of the end of this movie and each time we try it and it didn't work or we get notes back and we, you know, we yeah. show it to audiences within Pixar and they can be brutal yeah. and be very on point about what works for them or what doesn't work for them. Um, and Brian's superpower is his willingness to, to blow up the story and start all over again. We yeah. recarded and rebooked this movie a dozen times. Yeah. Okay, um, final thing. Uh, next up is Coco for Pixar. And I believe in Cars 3, there's some nods to Coco. Can you pick, pick them out for me? Yeah, we have uh, two of them, actually. We usually we usually do one. Um, there is a moment where some young racers are training in a, in a training facility. McQueen goes to a new training facility. There's some kids on some treadmills, and there's... Um, there is a racer from Mexico, and um, he's reminded of his hometown. So we have a little nod to that on the right. screen, which is actually a scene from Coco, but then we've taken out the people and replaced them with cars. Okay. And then uh, if you look very closely in the cotter pin, in the sort of uh, next gen, or the uh, uh, the uh, old, not old folks, what do we call them? Yeah, the, 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 le- the Legends Bar. The older yeah, racers. Yeah, yeah. You'll see a Coco skeleton guitar okay. on yeah. the bandstand. And have you guys? Are you guys having a break now? Are you not doing anything? Or have you got n- n- next projects coming up? Or 
he's going to take a break, and then we're going to work on it. Uh, Brian's going to work on an original, and uh, I'm going to continue to do casting and work with Brian. And but he's getting a longer break than I'm getting. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having yeah, us. Thank you. Thank you. Fun. All right, time for some movie news. Time yes. for some lovely movie news. What's yes. been happening in the world of movie news? Well, excitingly, mm-hmm. Joe Pesci what? joined yeah. Martin Scorsese's... What the fuck? <laughs> ...latest, uh, latest uh, gangster film and reunited with uh, Robert De Niro, which is huge. And uh, I believe Nick will want to point it out that he interviewed Joe Pesci back in 2010, I think, in a, uh, a phone call uh, that left him visibly trembling in his seat. Um, <laughs> and it he'd a, asked it him, and, sex phone and he call, said that he was, was... No, it was none of that. It was just nerve-wracking. It was just Joe Pesci. He's Joe Pesci, yeah. And he, he said he would, he would do it. Um, apparently, it took 50 requests, 50 asks for him to agree. Um, yeah, but that doesn't just, specify if that was in the same conversation. Yeah, it is. Please, Joe, please, Joe, please, Joe. It's just De Niro, isn't it? Yeah, hey, yeah. you're going to do it? I don't know. You're gonna do it. I don't know. You're gonna do it. I don't know. You're gonna do it. I don't know. It's just like that, but fifty times. <laughs> Thank you for not doing that fifty times. I'll think about it. I'll think about it. You're gonna do it. Think about it. I'll think about it. Hey, come on, give me a break here. That's what he would say. That was it. That was, yeah, pretty much. Okay, I'll do it. I'll, okay, fuck I you. I don't want do you to do it. I don't want you to do it. Okay, fuck you. I'm gonna do it. Bit of reverse psychology from old Bobby De Niro there. <laughs> see, he's, how, he's, he's already. That's probably exactly how it played he's out. He's got inside Pesci's head. How he confused him into accepting the role. <laughs> Damn it! What am I doing on this movie set? How did I get here? So yeah. <laughs> why is that Joe Pesci impression? Mm. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> What's <laughs> happening? So that yeah, happened. That reminded me of the Three Amigos. You know, look up here, look up here, waka. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Uh, but it's all very exciting. Well done. That's amazing. The Irishman. And this is um this is the project that De Niro talked about whenever uh, I interviewed him on the podcast last year. And he said that they're going to be doing mocap. <laughs> what? <laughs> Come what? on. Why is that funny? I just that's funny. I don't that's know. That's so funny. I just I've got a vision of Joe funny Pesci how? wearing wearing <laughs> ping pong balls. What the fuck? What the fuck? I look like a fucking mook. I can't see it. <laughs> but Sorry, you haven't finished telling what in what capacity. Tell me more about the mocap. <laughs> <laughs> what an image! Mo-cap. What an image! Like fuck you at the mocap suite. What the fuck am I? What the fuck am I wearing this for? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, Get so they're going to be playing. They're going to be playing younger versions of themselves, not themselves, but of the characters uh, that they play in the Irishman. Uh, so you're going to you're going to get uh, you know. It's a one amazing uh, cast. Yeah. I think it's performance capture night, actually. It is performance. Or maybe he just meant they're going to cap someone called Mo. <laughs> which is entirely... That's also possible. It's entirely possible. That's much more plausible. Uh, so, yes. Yeah, oh, that's one of the amazing cast. The Irishman. No one's going to get killed in this film, quite clearly. <laughs> <laughs> De Niro. No. Yeah. It is Pacino, isn't it, as well? Yep. De Niro, Pacino, Pesci, Harvey Keitel, Bobby oh. Cannavale... Maybe De Niro can I'm, like I'm bluff little, Gene Hackman into coming out of retirement for this one as well. I'm, I'm a little bit upset though that like DiCaprio oh. isn't in there anywhere, anywhere. So you had the whole of the Scorsese All Stars <laughs> all together. Oh, it. it is a shame. It is a shame. Poor Bobby Cannavale does feel a little bit like one of these things. It's not like the others. <laughs> it's like well, you, oh, you got, only I think because he's too you know, young to have been in that. Precisely. You know, like but, if if Bobby Cannavale was a bit older, he yeah. would absolutely have been in Goodfellas. Yeah, like a hundred percent. But you know what I mean? It's like De Niro, yeah. Pacino. 
Keitel, Pesci, and Bobby Cannavale. It just feels a little bit like that. But what a project. I'm so excited about it. Pacino's going to play Jimmy Hoffa. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exciting. That's going to end well for him. Yeah. Fast forward a year and it's going to be... Welcome to the Empire Podcast this week. Bobby Cannavale here to talk about the Irish. Bobby, it's so good to see you in this Bobby, film. we obviously couldn't I get just... the other Bobby or Al or Joe or Harvey yeah. Keitel. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, like, I, like, I like some of... I like your work. I like some... Uh, yes, hello, Bobby Cannavale. I won't be doing that interview, I don't think. No. No. No, no. I hope we get Joe Pesci in Ping Pong Balls. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. Uh, Steve Salian is writing the script. This is fantastic. It's going to be good. But is it the most exciting movie news of the week? Oh, I don't know, because there's no. been a lot. I mean, you know, obviously I'm super excited that Transformers spin-off Bumblebee has added yeah. a cast member. Mm, but it's Jorge uh, Lendeborg Jr., who was very nice in Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh, or perhaps you're more excited about the first images from A Wrinkle in Time, which was pretty cool looking. That's Ava DuVernay's adaptation of the classic novel. Um, brilliant, brilliant pictures this week emerged of the the leads, basically all of them. You've got uh, Reese Witherspoon as Mrs. Watsit, Mindy Calling as Mrs. Who, Oprah Winifrey as Mrs. Witch. Uh, you've got uh, the newcomer who's playing the sort of the lead of the film, um, Storm Reid, who plays Meg, uh, pictured with Ava DuVernay herself. And then their father is Chris Pine, and we see him as well. I'm super excited about that one. It looks great. It looks really, really cool. But so, you're probably talking about Quentin Tarantino, aren't you? What? What the fuck? Yes, I am. Yeah, I thought you were. I am. Uh, it's exciting now. It is really exciting. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Get on wrinkle, a wrinkle in time, people. It's going to be good. So Quentin Tarantino is apparently on the verge of making his next movie. Yeah, so this is, uh, this is the news. And it, at this point, it is still, I think, just largely scuttlebutt. That Quentin Tarantino has, uh, f- it's close to or has finished his latest script, which is obviously a, a source of, uh, of great rejoicing in Hollywood when that happens. They gather around, they watch the smoke appear from his chimney, and they know it's that it, is, it is ready. It is ready. It is ready. <laughs> and then they run to his house, and he hands the pages down to the agents, and they run around and they cover themselves in the ink, and it all gets quite bacchanalian, actually. But anyway, won't go into that. Uh, and this is going to be a movie about. The Manson family, we believe, mm-hmm. and the the murder of, well, the murders of many, but incl- including, we're guessing, Sharon Tate, for whom apparently he is courting Margot Robbie, and uh, the prosecution that followed, for which uh, apparently Brad Pitt is being courted as well. Uh, what do we make of this? Because this is obviously, the new Quentin Tarantino film is obviously always a huge deal uh, this is the first time he has delved into actual historical events, if mm-hmm. you don't count World War II, which Not he changed. Not the way he did it. He changed slightly. Uh, but this is the first time he's done something that is, that is rooted in fact, recordable fact. Well, if, if it is indeed closely based on the Manson murders, because we have there is a little sort of a subgenre nowadays of, of loose Manson related stuff was it the girls was that book that came out recently which sort of looks at women in the manson cult um so there has been sort of manson related but not actually manson stories told and this could be another one you know we don't know that he's going to be any more faithful to the events than he was to world war ii so uh we we can't draw too much from this yet but it i mean it's different to what he's done before it's an era that he i think fetishizes slightly um, and is interested in and could do a good job with. Yeah. 
So that's cool. Should we, yeah, should we say more about who Charles Manson was? And, and well, I mean, he was he was a sort of a, he seemed to be a sort of charismatic, you know, relatively good looking kind of cult leader, and he had followers, and they sort of lived in a kind of hippie-ish commune, but with the, you know, a slightly homicidal edge, basically. Mm. Um, hence the deaths. Yes. Uh, so uh, they. Sharon Tate was the the wife of Roman Polanski at the time. This this the murders took place in 1969. Uh, yeah. She was pregnant with with Polanski's child. Yeah. Uh, the man's Manson and his group broke into a house in L.A. that uh, they thought belonged to someone else. Yeah, they uh, thought belonged to a record producer who turned yeah. turned him down. And uh, Sharon Tate and some other people were there, and um, they murdered them quite brutally. And it's absolutely horrendous. Uh, but I imagine there's going to be something in this. You know, I think there are quite Tarantino-esque themes. Obviously, you know, there's something about obsession. There's something about the nature of celebrity and what you do to achieve that. It feels a little bit natural-born killers to me. I mean, it's just something that's informed his work over the years. And maybe now he's, maybe now he's at a point in his life where he's decided to tackle something that feels a little bit more real yeah. and maybe not so hyper pop culturally uh, pumped up. Um, so. I'm intrigued by it. Um, someone in my Twitter feed again was a little bit. I'm sorry, don't, don't didn't get your name, but was a little bit dubious about this. In in that it could be looked at as exploitation of a horrendous real life situation. As long as it doesn't glorify Charles Manson, yeah, I I think films about real life murders and real life uh, incidents like this can be important and can say something. And I don't think necessarily that, you know, because then you would discount Zodiac, you would discount a, a, a number of other movies about real life yeah. incidents like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where do, where do you stand on that? Is this something that, you know, as uh, directors, directors should tackle or should they shy away from this sort of stuff? I, uh, t- Tarantino's always had a, you know, very kind of pop culture savvy, self-referential style, which is the first thing you think probably it's harder to apply to a very serious incident of this nature. Um, so I, I, at first thought, it's kind of hard to imagine how how the two things would gel. Um, but I don't know. It's a hard one. I mean, for one thing, watching, you know, an eight-month-old, eight-month pregnant woman being brutally murdered uh, it is not easy. Mm. It's quite a chewy piece of cinema that would be. Um but yeah, I mean, there's so many ways into the story. It could be that, you know, it takes the, it follows the aftermath of the story or it's more of a kind of origin story for the Manson family. I, one thing you do know is that this is an incident that was kind of like the the, the prelude to a really dark hangover from the 70s Hollywood. If you yeah. read um, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, um, the Peter Biskin book, you know, it's very much, this is the the, the sort of the, the, the watershed event in Hollywood at the time when this kind of freewheeling, fast living auteur culture had kind of given way to something a bit darker and a bit more kind of self um, critiquing I guess mm. so maybe you know it is an epochal event and I don't think Hollywood has has, has really tackled it it's, it's also maybe I mean natural born killers maybe is a better reference point for this yeah. than, than some other stuff because it is a, a story about death and celebrity and murder and celebrity and celebrity murderers uh, as well, because he became a huge. I mean, the fact we're we're talking, we all know his name. Forty years later, even if you don't know the details of the crime, you know about the Manson family. You know about Charles Manson. You know that's a thing. Mm. 
that's weird. That's unnatural. And uh, I think it is, it's, it's the beginning of the, you know, murderer as celebrity kind of culture. So there might be something in that that, that would really suit Tarantino. But again, we don't know how closely based on truth this is going to be. So it may well be Tarantinoized quite thoroughly by the time it hits the screen. It's certainly something that I think is going to be. Uh, more details will emerge over the next few weeks and we're uh, and months, and we're very, very intrigued by it, very interested by it. If this is indeed, if he only has what two or three movies left, so he says, then mm. uh, it's an interesting choice. It is an interesting, movies. interesting one, sort of semi-connected in terms of it being a true life event. But the uh, the terrorist attack on the train from Paris to Amsterdam, mm-hmm. or was it Amsterdam to Paris? I can't remember. But well, it's, it's to Paris. To Paris. Yeah. The film's called, right. It's called yes, 15, it's called To it's Paris. It's called the 1517 No, the 1517 from Paris. Okay, well, yeah. that clears that up. Um, Clint Eastwood is directing it, obviously, and he's cast the actual American so This is the, uh, the, the attack that happened in, what was 2015, I'm guessing? Uh, a couple of years ago, anyway. Uh, and there was a, an attack on a train to Paris and three American, three Americans, and a couple of them were, they were soldiers, mm-hmm. thwarted yeah. the attack and got injured themselves. Correct. That's the story. That's yeah. the story. They overpowered the guy, um, and clearly sort of found them and cast them to play themselves in this movie. It's shades of uh, was it Ollie Murphy from World War Two who played yeah. himself in films after the war? Yeah, yeah kind of. But mm. I mean, yeah, can they all act? I guess could Ollie Murphy? I, I yeah. Well, this is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is interesting. So it's uh, Anthony Sadler. Uh, he's, I don't know these. I, I Google this. Uh, Anthony Sadler. Alex Scarlatos and U.S. Air Force Airman First Class Spencer Stone. Alex Scarlatos was a an Oregon National Guardsman, and they were all childhood friends. And they're and they're playing them and they're acting alongside. This is the Paul Greengrass uh, aesthetic taken to new heights. I mean, mm-hmm. he cast in United ninety three Greengrass cast people who actually essentially playing themselves, uh, who were in those roles on nine eleven, and obviously at the end of Captain Phillips, the the medic who deals with Tom Hanks at the end of Captain Phillips is a real-life medic who, and that scene was largely improvised at the end of Captain Phillips. This is taking it to a new extreme. I mean, you're right. I mean, this is three guys. Who better to know what they went through than the three guys? Can they act? Can Eastwood surround them with good enough actors to, to bring them up to a level... It's going to be fascinating to find out, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, he's he's surrounding them with with good people and bigger names. So Judy yeah. Greer, Jenna Fisher have both been cast in apparently basically small roles, like virtual cameos around them. So if you've got that caliber of person acting around non professional actors, then it's got to raise everybody's game, surely. They're so. not playing. They're not the meat of the film, though. Apparently, there's, there's a lot of their childhood selves. Sure, being explicit, an origin story for these three guys and how they got on that train. Interesting. Yeah. So oh. presumably sort of exploring their early interest in taking train journeys. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, shall, we shall see how that turns out. I, I also heard this, it started filming this week and it's going to be in cinemas by December. Clint Eastwood does not mess Come around. on. It takes longer to edit this podcast. It took longer to edit the Spider-Man Homecoming podcast than it did to uh, edit this movie. Uh, and it's pretty I mean, amazing. how does that work if you don't, if you're not, if you haven't acted before? And you've got one take to nail it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. Yeah. I think I could give you a little bit more there, Clint. No, it's fine. It's good. It's all good. Um, what else is happening? Helen, uh, uh, this is news tailor for you. What's that? Chris Nolan says that he may still direct a, a Bond movie. Well, that figures. He already did. It was called The Dark Knight Rises. Jeez. 
That's not a Bond movie. It's a Bond movie. There's two women, one of them's evil. Come on. Batman Begins is a Bond movie. No, Batman Begins is a good Batman movie. And it's also a good Bond movie. Meh. Meh. Why I order. Um, (laughs) Hey, speaking of cartoon voices, uh, John Oliver has been cast in John Favreau's Lion King redo. I hesitate to call it live action because it can't be. Um, but uh, but he, he's been added to the voice cast as Zazu, who was originally voiced by Rowan Atkinson. Um, James Earl Jones is returning as Mufasa because honestly, who else could possibly voice Mufasa? Don't be ridiculous. Donald Glover is Simba and Seth Rogen is Pumba and Billy Eichner is Timon. So the cast is rounding out quite nicely. Um, it's all happening. Yeah, but John uh, John Oliver, I think, will be will be really fun in that role. So I'm quite I'm quite pleased with that. Yeah, one. Yeah, it sounds like good casting. Yeah, good. Uh, every, every bit of casting so far of that movie has been pretty spot on. So I'm very very excited about that. Uh, are you excited about the fact that there's a Mamma Mia sequel and that Lily James is in it and she's going to be playing a young Meryl Streep? I mean, it's it's a bit. I mean, Meryl Streep has two actor daughters. It seems a, both of whom look unbelievably like her seems a bit odd to not cast them maybe they don't or don't want maybe to they sing sucked. That, I've you, seen them act that? they're pretty consider good that? they're pretty good they went in the audition they thought I've got this I've nailed it it's in the bag I'm going to be playing Meryl Streep yeah no can't do it get out Lily James has got it I mean we'll just have to see if this prequel lives up to the original and doesn't ruin it okay <laughs> no, good callback. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Tying it all together. Uh, and Matt Reeves, who will be uh, appearing on our War for the Planet of the Apes spoiler special, that interview's in the bag. Uh, he said that they may well be ripping up the Batman script, uh, the, ba- the Batman script, and starting from scratch. That's. Hey. Maybe not a shock, who knows? Uh, but that's exciting. Uh, and hey, you know what else is exciting? New Empire Magazine. New Empire Magazine. It came out this week. We're all very, very excited. On the cover is Blade Runner 2049, uh, which is a sequel, of course, to Blade Runner. Don't worry if you haven't seen the other. 2047. Mm -hmm. So we talked to, uh, we were on set, and we talked to Ryan Gosling and... Harrison Ford and Denny Villeneuve and all sorts of amazing people and uh, there they are with the cover story and the incredible subscribers cover as well. The cover is a thing of absolute beauty. It's gorgeous. Uh, it's fantastic, isn't it? So, uh, so there it is. What else is in it? What else is in there, Chris? Really, let me just take a look here, Ellen. Let me just give me a second. Oh, that's it. Oh, should I read it out loud? Yeah, okay. let's use your outdoor uh, voice. So, the Hitman's bodyguard... Uh, bodyguard? <laughs> bodyguard. <laughs> the, the Hitman's bodyguard. The Hitman's bodyguard. Decorative gourd season, bitches. <laughs> the Hitman's bodyguard. Uh, so, that's the new comedy from Ryan, uh, starring Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, we got them together and they... It's a very funny feature and they say the word motherfucker a lot. So, there you go. What? Uh, no. Those I two? I don't believe it. Uh, what else do we have? We have the Dark Tower. We have a feature on the Dark Tower, uh, which finally afforded me the chance to uh, get past that sneaky, pesky restraining order and talk for the first time ever to my favourite writer of all time. Uh, no, I wasn't Charles having Dickens. a conversation with myself. Uh, I was talking to Stephen King. Stephen Bloody King. Very, very excited. Uh, and I, you know, I'm sure he was excited too. And uh, so I spoke to him and Matthew McConaughey and uh, Idris Elba, Big Driss, and uh, yeah, 
got the got and uh, Nick Nikolai Arcel, the director, and got the full skinny and ads. That's all very very exciting. Uh, I also spoke to all four members of the Defenders. Uh, how much would they fetch in a world where Kyle Walker's gone for fifty five million? How much would uh, Iron Fist fetch on the open market, Phil? Uh, Six hundred thousand. <laughs> Wait, is this a is this a football joke? It's a football joke. Oh, thanks. The defenders, Helen. I've I've taken. <gasps> I see. Okay. See? Yeah. see I'm, I'm running with it. Paul McGrath. Uh, yes. Holy shit! I know a defender. <laughs> wow. That's good. That's amazing. I mean, I know the other four as well, but. Okay. So, yeah, so I spoke to Charlie Cox and Kristen Ritter and Mike Coulter and Finn Jones for that and asked them all the same questions, including the big question, do you get free Netflix? Uh, And the answers might surprise you after the jump. Uh, Also, Logan Lucky, Phil Cat. Hi. Hey. Tell people about that. Well, um, Logan Lucky is a movie starring uh, Channing Tatum and Adam Driver and Daniel Craig. Yeah. It's the anti-Ocean's Eleven Mm-hmm. It's just the, one anti, otherwise o- it would Ocean's be the Ocean's... Seven Eleven. Oh, that's good. That's a line from the movie. Oh, okay. Can't Cheating. take credit. <laughs> Cheating. They actually reference Ocean's Eleven in the movie. I, I couldn't Logan say if Lucky. I've seen it or not. It's embargoed, I hear. I what? don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it's a Steven Soderbergh up. film though, right? Yeah, so we interviewed um, Steven Soderbergh yeah. a couple of times and talked to him about his return to film. Obviously, he's retired. So this is... Um, in fact, you... Uh, that's what he did in his, with his pipe and slippers. You conducted the... Uh, the Empire Exit interview with him a few That's years correct, ago when yeah. he retired and you asked him questions as if he was leaving the company. I like, did. Yeah, have I believe you, that have was... you been happy with your time here and all that sort of stuff? Yes. And what are you going to do with the future? Where do you see yourself in five years' time? That sort of thing. Yes. And now he's back because he got he bored. He lied, yeah. basically. Big um, liar. He's, a big, he's a big liar. He's been very busy doing, obviously, some TV projects and uh, he's now about making films, which is fantastic because he's good at it. It's exciting. And right. uh, this this one is a build as a kind of a hayseed caper. So if you want to know more about Logan Lucky, pick up the new issue Empire. Uh, Soderbergh, right ahead. Uh, Empire interview this month is Rooney Mara, uh, who is in all sorts of films coming up soon, including a ghost story and and, and uh, other things. Uh, and there's a, a feature I'm really excited about. It was. I used to know it as Worst Jobs, but now it's called Give Up Your Day Job. And it is, uh, we canvass a number of famous types to tell us about the, the jobs that they weren't too unhappy about leaving behind. Yes. So this yeah. is outside acting. This is not their. Before they became famous. Yeah, before they became yeah. famous. Yeah. So, you know, someone, Colin Firth was wiping down airplanes and stuff. So it's all, it's all very, very exciting in there. And then we have, <laughs> this is a really great feature, uh, a, a celebration of the. 20th anniversary of Con Air. Oh. Come on, put the bunny back in the box, Chris. Yeah. Well, we tried. We tried. Unfortunately, the bunny is dead. Uh, <gasps> so there we go. There we go. Uh, we spoke to Jerry Bruckheimer. We spoke to Simon West. And we spoke to the screenwriter as well. And uh, it's a fantastic uh, feature, too. So that's all very good. So that's the feature section taken care of. Uh, also, Phil, in your section, yeah. what's happening? Which is a preview, Whoa. which is the news section. Phil is not entirely sure what was happening. It's been a while, Chris. It's been a while. Uh, so you got some Coco in there. Yes, we've got some. We've got some exclusive concept art. Yeah, from Coco, the new Pixar film. Um, yeah. We got Lee Unkrich to talk us through the uh, Pixar's Mexican um, uh, Day of the Dead adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very exciting first look at Detroit. Mm-hmm. Catherine Bigelow's return to the big screen, um, mm-hmm. which is high octane. Tough, tough social drama yep. um, with a thriller sort of edge to it. We look at um, Black Panther, what you need to know about Black Panther. All of it, it's here. 
And uh, um, we've also got a piece on Death Note, mm-hmm. which is the new Netflix Adam Wingard project, um, yep. which is coming soon and uh, very much worth checking out. A bit of a dark horse, that one. Um, Sky's new Tin Star, Tim Roth. Tim Star, you could Tim say. Star. Tim Star. Um, not a Western, kind of a near Western. Helen, near you were on the set of that one. I was, you? yeah. In, yeah, in Calgary. Um, it looks really cool. I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see it, actually. Tin Star. Tin Star. Sort of violent, Exciting. corporate, kind of a lot of Western tropes, but not quite. Yeah, sort of reinvented, kind of undercover cop, but not anymore. There's some, mm-hmm. yeah, there's some, there's some twisted kind of identity stuff in there. It's going to be good. Juicy stuff. And does Laura Linney know how much a pint of milk is? Does she? Uh, Spoiler. No one knows how much a pint of milk is. <laughs> Helen, how much is a pint of milk? 49p. Okay, Helen knows how much a pint of milk is. She gets it almost right. Does she? Okay. won't tell you what the price is, but right. she gets it almost right. Okay. Uh, and you've got to look at Bright as well, the new Will Smith, uh, Joel Edgerton, uh, Cops and Orcs uh, movie, which is coming out on Netflix. Oh, another Cops soon. and Orcs movie. Now, that like old that. chestnut. Uh, and then at the back of the magazine, you get the review section. We have the Empire Viewing Guy, which is Logan, which is James Mangold, talking us through that movie in great detail, even greater detail, you might add, than the, uh, the spoiler special he did with us for the film uh, a few months ago. Uh, so we discussed some things we didn't discuss. In the podcast. Yeah, so there you go. First thing, first thing Michael said to me when I got on the phone with him, he's like, he said, Chris, haven't we talked the fucking shit out of this movie already enough? And I was like, oh, no, actually, there's a few more things to talk about. Uh, we have uh, Jordan Peele, on my favorite film of the year so far, Get Out, uh, talked about that in great detail as well. We have Isabel Huppert, uh, Phil did that. I did. Yeah, it was good. She's yeah, cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Uh, Jason Isaacs is this month's Best of Times, Worst of Times, and as you might imagine, is hilarious. Uh, what else do we have? We have a look at uh, the story of the shots, Dark Knight. What's the big read? I, I edited this section, I can't remember what's in it. The Graduate. Yes, we spoke to the producer of The Graduate, a guy called Lawrence Terman. I'll do that again. A guy called Lawrence Terman, who's in his 90s. But still lucid, and uh, so he was telling us all about that. And uh, Franco Nero, movie mastermind, and John Niven is the first take club, and that's very, very funny. And I don't think there's anything else of any interest, Helen. Is there? There's nothing of any. Oh, hang on. No, Wait. I think I think no. no I, I think talked we... to Alan Menken, and he talked me through his, his best oh, songs. Did I just skip that? Yeah, you did. Oh, if I skipped it again. Oh no. Yeah. So uh, Helen spoke to Alan Menken and talked uh, to all all sorts of great songs, including including. Including the Star Spangled Man, and including Little Shop of Horrors, uh, basically some of his, uh, just some of the best ones. Some of the best ones, some of the, the very best of Alan Menken. And that sounds like the very best of Empire, and sorry about the hard sell, but we only do it once a month. And it is available right now in all good and evil news agents, priced just £4.70. Hi, it's Chris here again, just jumping in uh, to let you know that this is the point where we are about to have Jason Blum, who came into London uh about two months ago, roughly, uh, about riding high on the success of Split and Get Out. And we sat down and we talked about both those movies and, of course, about some of his unique cost-cutting measures as well. He's a very, very fun guy, fascinating guy. And here he is, me talking to Jason Blum. Enjoy. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast by Jason Blum. How are Thank you, sir? Very well. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, Neil, it's good to be here. You are having... A hell of a year, even by your standards. Even it's been a great year for uh, for Blumhouse. Been a great year for Blumhouse. Absolutely. So you've had Split, which did pretty well. You've had Get Out, which did pretty well. 
where would you put this on on the on the scale of Blumhouse successes? I mean, because you you've won an Oscar. I mean, you know, for Whiplash. So would you put it up we there? Were, we were nominated for it. The course, movie yes. won Oscars. Yes. We were nominated for an Oscar. Uh, uh, as much as I'd like to pretend that we won one, I thought about <laughs> it for a second. Um, uh, where would I put that? I would say this is this is um, you know the company is is. Is definitely this is the, uh, the 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 highest moment I would say for the company right now. I mean, I really feel like um, the past two movies. You know, the, obviously the financial success is great. You know, we've had that before, but the but the particularly with Get Out, the social relevance of the movie and the way it touched a nerve culturally. I'm very very proud of that. Mm. Did you expect that when Jordan Peele came to you with the, with this script? You know, I feel like the minute you you expect something to be successful, it's probably time to quit. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't I mean, we've had we've had a lot of success at the company, and we've also had movies that haven't worked. So I never expect, uh, you never expect the kind of success that the movie had. We, I felt good about the movie. We premiered the movie at Sundance. I felt mm-hmm. like it was we got very well reviewed, and I felt like it was going to open well, which it did. But I never anticipated it would hold the way it's held, and I think you know it could turn out to be our highest grossing film of all time. And uh, and it's it's a phenomenal film as well, and it, it, as you said, it has a, a cultural impact and a cultural afterlife. I don't think anyone really expected. I mean, I'm now seeing talk that it could be in the Oscar race for next year. Uh, it, what's your thought about about that? First of all, could this film stick around? I hope it sticks around. I feel like you know people talk about the decline of the relevance of cinema, and I feel like what Jordan did with Get Out is remind people that cinema is still relevant. I mean, everyone talks about the the golden age of TV, which is true, but every so often a movie kind of breaks through and and has the impact of of everyone's favorite TV show, which people seem to be talking about more, at least in the United States. So uh, so so I really hope so. I really hope so. And. Um, and uh, and I think it will. I think it will continue to remain in the consciousness, um, in at least the, for the rest of this year and years to come. It's an extraordinary film. It's it's, it's my film of the year. Uh, so so far wow. we're in May. We're in May, obviously. Wow. Well, thank <laughs> it's my you. Film of the thank year. you. It's absolutely. It blew me away. And uh, it's such an original film. Not only tonally, but he approaches it in a really interesting way. Given his background as a comedian, were you surprised when he walked into your offices and pitched you this very very dark, blackly comedic? socially relevant horror film well I was very surprised he didn't pitch it to me I read it you know I, I'd heard the script was good no the script was floating around for a couple of years no one would make it those are always our favorite movies that happened with The Purge <laughs> it is a script that happened on the finished movie that happened with Paranormal Activity it happened with The Visit it happened with Unfriended you know we've, we've, we've had a lot of success with things that other people have not wanted to touch which is my favorite kind of success and uh, I read the script I was very surprised that Jordan Peele wrote it to answer your question very very surprised and I met him a couple days later and he pitched it very very articulately and he revealed to me that as much as he was known for comedy his true love is genre and and you know proof is in the pudding and that his next movies uh, you know some of which we're going to be producing are genre movies they're not comedies so that's where his he's been he's been he's been hiding his true desire for many years but at the same time there is a, a lovely strain of comedy that runs all the way through get out was that something that was always present in the script is that something that, that you uh, you uh, accentuated in, in tandem with Jordan or was it always there it was always there I think that the best genre movies have a lot of comedy if you look at the insidious movies or the third paranormal activity movie think that genre works best when the audience doesn't expect a thrill to come doesn't doesn't see the 
scary part or the thrilling part coming. Mm-hmm. And what comedy does is makes the audience relax and catch, gets them off guard. So when something thrilling happens, it has, it has more impact. And Jordan and I talked about that. And I think it's very important that Get Out is seen as a thriller, mm-hmm. but it has a lot of funny stuff in it, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, a horror comedy, which I think is a very, very different kind of movie. Nothing wrong with it, but I don't see Get Out that way. Yeah, because the marketing is very, very clearly this is a, a thriller or a horror thriller uh, and the marketing was, was fantastic it didn't really tell you anything about the film just Daniel Kaluuya's eyes yeah. terrified eyes yeah. uh, I'm imagining uh, that you are very very much involved in the marketing of, of your movies can you talk about that that approach we are very involved in the marketing of the movies um, uh, the movies most of our movies are done with Universal and uh, Universal is in charge but they listen to us a lot and um, it was very important to Jordan that we not reveal too much there was actually one moment in the trailer that went too far and he uh he he pulled us all back and he was really right to do so it was really the smart thing to do but um but the great one of the great benefits of making low budget movies is uh we have a lot of say all going all the way through because we don't get paid up front. So if you don't take a fee up front <laughs> and you only make money if the movies make money and you keep the risk low for whoever's financing the movie, they're yeah. much more likely to listen to you. And, and so we, uh, we have a great partnership with Universal and they're very open to our ideas. Fantastic. Uh, it's interesting because I, I, there's a trailer for a movie that's yet to come out that, uh, that basically starts with the end scene. So that's a major, major movie. So I imagine it's it's wonderful having that freedom to it's not terrific. give away stuff that happens in the trailer. It's terrific. It's, you don't, terrific. it's not like a Mission Impossible trailer where Tom Cruise is jumping you, off the helicopter at the end. We or, saw the whole movie yeah, in the trailer. We saw the whole movie. Yeah, you exactly. You, you do not want they, to do But that. they saved me $14. <laughs> I'm guessing you saw Mission Impossible anyway. I'm guessing you went <laughs> I to see it at some point. I actually okay. did. I might have seen it. I might have, been, I might have, I might have not paid, though. <laughs> I might have been invited to a screening. Okay, fair enough. And, uh, and what about Split? I mean, that, you've obviously worked with uh, with M Night before, and uh, you know, to, to great success with the visit. Uh, at what point did Split come about for, for you guys? So yeah, we had a we had a great success on the visit. The visit again fell into that category. It was a movie with it couldn't find a home, and I saw it and I loved it. And we we teamed up together and we worked on the movie a lot um, with Knight and. Uh, and uh, it, and it was a, it was a great success for us. We had a great time working with him. We have a great partnership, and we talked about doing our next movie together, and that became Split. And now we're doing Glass, which is mm-hmm. the third the third part in the in the tr- third and final part in the trilogy. And uh, and our relationship with Knight, the, the company's relationship with Knight is is unique. He's very independent. I mean, he really has his own whole system that he uses in uh, in uh, in Philadelphia. And we uh, we stop by now and then, but he's uh, he's really his own machine, and it's it makes it makes our job very easy. <laughs> uh, so, what did you think? I mean, now we can talk about Split uh, a little bit more. Uh, if you haven't seen Split, and if you haven't seen Knight's tweets about Glass, stop listening for the next two or three minutes. Get uh, online. But this is uh, this is a uh, a sequel of sorts to Unbreakable is revealed at the end. I believe that wasn't in the script initially. Is that was, was that the case? Or well, it wasn't in the, the script. Bruce Willis, the Bruce Willis sting. James McAvoy. You said know, it I know exactly what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't in the script initially. It, it for sure was not in the script initially. I'm, the only reason I'm pausing is I'm 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 trying to remember. I think 
Knight had it in his mind all along. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, it wasn't, definitely wasn't in the script, but I remember when I first read the script and talked to him about it, I think he may have <laughs> talked to me about it, but I actually don't remember. And by the way, if I revealed, if I, he's very secretive, so if I reveal anything, uh, anything about anything that he's doing, you know, he might, he'll, he'll, uh, he'll burn my house down. So I have to be very careful with what <laughs> I say. And there's the twist. <laughs> <laughs> there's the twist. He'll go to any lengths to protect he'll his He'll go secrets. to any lengths. <laughs> I have to do a blood oath with Knight not to say anything. But at what point did the idea that this was going to be Unbreakable 1.5 come about? Uh, because uh, I'm a huge fan of Unbreakable. I've been waiting for the sequel for years. And I bounced at the cinema on a cloud of air when I saw that. So, <laughs> I think, you know, I don't, the truth is, I don't know the answer to your question. But uh-huh. I think that Knight in, had in his mind the whole time, not even, you know, the, sec, the split and then glass and then the whole universe. I think he was thinking about it the entire time from even before he wrote split, what, what he was the, he's a very long-term strategic creative thinker, but I can't tell you for sure because he, he didn't share it with me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so without night crashing through this window yes. and, and taking us both out, yes. what can you say about glass? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I could say, go on Twitter and read what night wrote. That's what I could say. That's all I could say. That's my blood oath have you read the script i have not read the script You've not no, read the script? no i have not read the script uh nobody's read the script uh i mean actors may have read pieces of the script but nobody's nobody's he's he's still he's still he's still putting his finishing touches on the script okay and does and does a film like glass i mean obviously uh it's going to be again a co-production a movie like glass and uh, a movie like split are, do these fall under the the blumhouse purview of the you know the the five million dollar budgets or do you uh, uh, a lot, a little bit more cash. To you know, like all this. of our very strict rules that we abide by, they, they, those are all only for originals only. Mm-hmm. So, so the whole notion of five million dollars or less is for originals. And the reason for that is that once we have an original that works, if we're making a sequel, we have proof. Our whole idea is that we spend we spend the amount of money where if it doesn't work out, we're not going to lose too much or mm-hmm. break even. But on sequels, we have proven IP. So our sequels are, are all around, actually Glass is a little more, but our sequels are, are all around $10 million. Okay. So we spe- we do spend, by Hollywood standards, still very inexpensive. By <laughs> yeah. Blumhouse standards, uh, a, a fortune, <laughs> a fortune on, uh, on our sequels. You're mortgaging your house. To, We're mortgaging to... <laughs> our house on the sequels, yes. But I'm willing to do it. So something like Split, which was an original, mm. How does that work in terms of the budget? Was that was that round five, or do you put a little bit more? No, split was actually nine. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, and so you you caught me you caught me on that one. So split was actually <laughs> nine. So we, we broke our rule on that one for for night after the visit. We broke our rule. But then you so, had to pay James McAvoy twenty three times, right? So we had to pay James exactly. Thank you, thank you. That's what I should have said. We yeah. had to pay James McAvoy twenty three times exactly. <laughs> and get out. Jordan has to work within. He's a first time filmmaker, and yeah, so you, Jordan, tend to, you tend to leave. For filmmakers alone, don't you? you tend to yeah. Get out producer. was get out was uh, was four and a half million dollars, mm-hmm. and we tend to well, we we really I think that's kind of a misconception about about the company, which is that, and especially in, in Europe, it's much more. It's it's the norm is to give directors creative freedom and directors mm-hmm. final cut. It's only Hollywood where we don't do that. So for Hollywood, we're very unusual. We give the director final cut and final creative say. But what we found is by relinquishing control to them, they're much more likely to listen to us. And there's a much more <laughs> healthier dialogue because they know they're going to win. Uh-huh. So so we give them creative control. But that doesn't mean we leave them alone. We 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 
we give them an enormous amount of uh, ideas, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them they take, some of them don't, all the way through from development to casting to who they're going to hire for production to editing to marketing. So we're extremely involved in the movies, but uh, but we're involved in a way that isn't threatening to our directors. Okay. But there's such a lovely uh, DIY vibe uh, at Blumhouse over the years. I mean, I love the story about Ethan Hawke actually staying with you while he made, uh, I believe it was the first Purge. He stayed with me, sinister. He, we, when we made the first purge, uh, that is a true story. I lived in a. It was. It was actually. I think. I don't know if I was even married then. It might have been just my girlfriend, and we had a small two bedroom house in Los Angeles uh, that we no longer live in. And Ethan stayed in the other. We, he lived with me in the other room for three or four weeks while we made the movie. That's when we decided to make a Western. We watched <laughs> Westerns at night for the, we watched Westerns and he said, we got to make one of these. And that's where we decided to make Valley of Violence. Oh Actually, it was during that time. But yes, he did. He stayed on my, he stayed out, he stayed in our guest room, which was really a sofa. <laughs> so, so now you're in a, presumably a bigger place. Uh, so for Glass, we have Bruce Willis in the master Bruce bedroom. Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson are going to be sharing my <laughs> guest room. Yeah. Well, we have three bedrooms now, so that's, but I have a daughter, so there's oh, still okay. only one guest there's room. There's one so guest room. Still, he'll still have, they'll still have to share the guest room. Bruce will be in the top bunk. Sam yes. will be in the bottom yes, bunk. Exactly. James would just all over the place. James will be yeah, doing whatever does he does. Rooms. <laughs> you might have to have an extension. <laughs> and one last thing, Jason. Um, I read a profile of you a few years ago. I think it was in the New Yorker. And uh, there's an amazing story. I just want to see if this is absolutely true. That uh, on a flight once, instead of booking business class, you booked a row of economy seats and had a custom-made bed built that fit into the row. Is this true? Uh, it's half true. It wasn't it's in New Yorker. It was in, okay. I think it was in, it was in a, like a business, like a fortune magazine or something. Okay. I've, I've never been in the New Yorker. Um, but, uh, but it is a hundred percent true. I priced the uh, trip from New York to Morocco and it was $6,000 a seat. I was flying with my wife for Christmas. We were going or so it was more $15,000 or whatever. And I, and I, they, I, I, I had the, I got the measurements of the negative space in coach where your feet go. Um, so from the top of the seat to the floor and, and the edge of the seat to the front of the seat. And, uh, and I had a custom made inflatable, which looked like a big hot dog, right? Which is about two feet by two feet. And, uh, I started a month early. I had a custom made inflatable and I, I had a machine that inflated this thing that sounded like a <laughs> jackhammer. And I went through security with this machine. This tells you about security, which looked like a weapon and this inflatable. And I went through security and then the security guard said, what's that? I said, oh, that's to blow up my inflatable. And he said, OK, go ahead through. Like, <laughs> that was it. I got on the plane. This never would have happened with the UK. You know, I don't think Virgin would have let me do this or, no. or United. But uh, but it was Air Morocco. I got I, we got on the seat. We took off. I inflated this thing with this thing. And everyone looked at me like I was going to do something horrible. But the stewardesses didn't stop me. I inflated the whole thing. By the end of it. Everyone sitting around us like, you got to take that on Shark Tank. <laughs> and I slept on my tube and my wife slept on the three seats. We slept next to each other like two little sardines and it was very comfortable and I saved $10,000. And I have pictures to prove it. Sold. I mean, I've already got five pounds on me, but if you want investment, I'm in. All right, good. <laughs> Jason Blum, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks very Thank much. You. Where we're going to kick off the reviews section of the program by talking about Sofia Coppola's remake of the Don Siegel Clint Eastwood movie, The Beguiled. Uh, this has an all-star cast. It does, yes. Uh, tell us about it, Beguiled, Helen. The Beguiled. I, I prefer Beguiled. to think of this as, a, as another adaptation, as a re-adaptation rather than a remake. 
although I guess it's yeah. a matter of semantics. Um, it's a matter of semantics. Thank you. So uh, it's set during the uh, American Civil War and a wounded Union soldier, so that's the North, uh, John McBurney, uh, who's played by Colin Farrell, is found by a little girl under a tree and she brings him back to where she lives, which is a, a ladies' school. And there's only about five people, five five students left in the school. Obviously, people have scattered to the four winds, to their families, to anywhere they can get that they think might be safe. So uh, there's two teachers left for those who have nowhere else to go. Two teachers have stayed on. They're played by Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst. And um, and they're trying to kind of hold it together uh, mm-hmm. completely on their own, on the edge of a war zone, essentially. Uh, and this guy brought into this all-female environment kind of is a cat among the pigeons. Um, mm-hmm. And they all find themselves in initially sort of, you know, scrubbing up and, and trying to, you know, charm him and look nice and, and win him over in some way or to some degree. And then cracks start to appear, basically, in this little world. So, you know, you've got uh, Nicole Kidman seeing him as maybe a potential ally, a potential aide in this very dangerous time. You've got Kirsten Dunst kind of finding a kind of a romantic side reawakened. You've got Elle Fanning uh, kind of experiencing, basically, let's be honest, she really fancies him. (laughs) Uh, And it's a kind of sexual awakening thing for her, and she is being extremely flirtatious. Uh, but they're all reacting in different ways. And he initially thinks this is pretty cool because there's all these super hot ladies. And then it turns out not to be quite so good. Yeah. Uh, now, if you haven't seen the trailer for this, please avoid it like the plague because it gives away <laughs> the entire film. It's pretty faithful to the original as well, isn't it? So avoid the original. Yeah. Avoid, yeah. <laughs> so, this is or the book. True. Or the book. Yeah. That will also give uh, more away. Um, it's, it's a very Sophia Coppola film in that it's very focused on, you know, like seven blondes. Um, but, uh, I mean, come on, they all are pretty much. You're, you're th- you're, you've got your th- thinking face on, but this is the way it is. Oh, you mean seven blondes? You mean like, you saying that everyone in Sofia Coppola films is blonde? I'm saying basically Sofia Coppola films tend to focus on blonde ladies. That tends to be what they're about, really. Okay, anyway. all right, okay. Um, but it is, it's a brilliant study in just, in group dynamics, in group psychology, in uh, in a small group of women put together and, and how that affects them and... and mm-hmm what that looks like in female desire mm-hmm. and male desire and, and the contrast between them and how they sometimes clash. Um, and and just in, in, in a tiny group uh, under an immense amount of pressure and what that can kind of do to people. Uh, so it's, uh, I, I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. It's also, and I don't think it's had enough credit for this, it's hilarious. It's really, <laughs> really funny. Uh, and I, I think that's kind of been overlooked. It's a very black kind of sense of humour, but it is really, really funny. All of these little tiny girls, in some cases, making eyes at Colin Farrell. Um, I don't know, it just it really tickled me. So, you know, yes, there is the sort of psychosexual side to this, but it's also one of the funniest films I've seen this year. Million dollar question. Yeah. Think about taking Clemmy to see it on Saturday. Right, well, would she like it? It's a little bit, um, I would have said, maybe a little bit sexy for her as, a, as an eight-week-old or nine-week-old. Okay. But, um, but I think, you know, she couldn't do worse than, than have female role models like Nicole Kidman here, who's very steely and strong. Okay. So we give this four stars. Four stars. So the original, you know, the original, the, the, the Don Siegel yeah. film? Yeah. I really like that film. This and is, then that film, Eastwood, is an absolute tit. So... Yeah. 
Colin Farrell has tittish qualities here, <laughs> I won't deny. I'll tell you what I will say, though, is he looks extremely good uh, filmed by the female gaze, let's say. Okay. He's, he's, he's really, really on form here. This is, this is part of the... I don't know if there's a colonnaissance because I feel like he's never really gone away, but um, he's, he's absolutely on his best form here. It's really, really impressive. And just inc- incredible performances all around. But especially him and Nicole Kidman, I thought, were spot on. Spot on. Spot on. Uh, four stars in for the uh, Beguiled. And uh, Phil. Hi. Talk us through War for the Planet of the Apes, which came out on Tuesday in the UK. So I think a lot of people have seen it already. We are going to be recording our sport, especially for the, for the film immediately after okay. this podcast. Right. But well, I won't go into... I won't, I won't tiptoe around spoilers. crap on too much. No. Just tiptoe around spoilers. Yeah. So don't talk about the ending. That would be bad. Okay, I shan't. Um, well, it picks up two years after Dawn... Mm-hmm. Um, I still get confused about the titles, but they luckily they um, handily give you a little guide. Give don't you a little, you? yeah. They they do put some effort into making sure that if you come into this cold, that you can kind of figure out what's going on because it really yeah. does take you back to the events of what Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Well, there's there's text on screen, yeah, that that sets up what's happened yes. to get us to this point, and the text on screen uses the word rise. Very Use the words rise, yes. dawn, dawn, and, and war. war. And they, when those words appear, they appear in bigger yes. font than everything else. So just so yeah. you know, because I get them mixed up all the time. I go, which one's first? Rise of the dawn mm. of the what? The, the, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. They're taking no chances in this instance. It's, <laughs> like a, it's like one of those sizzle reels that you get to see, you know, with this sort of showing off the whole franchise. So it feels a little bit, mm, little bit sort of unorganic, but then it plunges you straight into this combat sequence um, which is very gritty very kind of modern in its aesthetic um, from the human point of view mm. as they the, 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 the sort of uh, aggressive human militia that still exists um, tries to flush out the apes from their uh, settlement deep in the you know Pacific Northwest so it starts off with this uh, kind of dank forest world and then ch- sort of changes ecosystems as the film goes on and it mm. becomes more of a you know you, there are shades of western as the apes move they have to they have to if you're familiar with the the, the, the animals of farthing wood um, <laughs> and who isn't and who isn't um this is that basically they're moving from one habitat to another through perilous terrain right with morris the the uh, uh what kind of ape is orangutan? it orangutan orangutan yeah. as badger Right. Trust me, if you look at the story, they're very similar. I don't think it was a direct inspiration for this, but um, it certainly reminded me a little bit of that. So the whole the whole ape population has to move, um, and they are and Caesar, as you discover early on, has a motivation to to enact revenge upon the mysterious colonel. Um, the film, you probably listeners probably know that it's got very strong apocalypse now. Um, kind of theme theme themes in it but it leans into them very much mm. you know there's graffiti on the walls that sort of says ape apocalypse now and you've got this colonel kurtz character played by woody house and mysterious um and uh it, it, it's it's a very very accomplished very well made piece of you know cg enhanced widescreen cinema mm. um i do not love the apes franchise i'll put that right out there the whole apes franchise i mean from uh, right back from the uh, heston no i enjoyed the heston ones um but I, this this it's, it's just not for me particularly but i can really appreciate the craft the you know wetter the wetter digital um work andy circus's work as caesar is getting oscar uh, buzz in whatever category you know just as a straight best actor 
role. He's so good at, at communicating this uh, this conflicted character. He's torn between his duty to the people, who he's now the sort of the leader of, undisputed, mm. and his quest for revenge against this guy. Um, so much going on internally beneath the fur, and uh, he communicates it so brilliantly. Um, and it, you, mm. there were times when you were just staring at the screen in wonderment at how good the, the CG mm. is. Oh, it's the interaction is, of fur and water yes. or fur and snow is stunning because yeah. all of those things were once very difficult in yes. CG and now they're just all yeah, over. Yeah, when you talk about Pixar, we talk about each each film, they, they break through a new sort of boundary in CG and with yeah. Monsters, Inc., they nailed fur. And these this film, this franchise, has come taking that to just a whole mm. new level. It's yeah. remarkable. It is amazing. Um, and it so is you amazing. cannot fail to be blown away by that. And there is moments of grandeur. I, I, it's been, there's been David Lean comparisons, which I think are a bit overblown, personally. I, as I say, I don't love it. I find the whole franchise gloomy and a bit overbearing in its themes. Um, I... I uh-huh. didn't laugh very much. I know it's a it's, it's an apocalyptic <laughs> film. I know, but they, they introduced yeah. this bad ape played by Steve Zahn, who I love, um, as comic relief, and he does have one or two funny moments. But it's not in any way a funny film, or uh, you know, even in dark moments of serious thematic mm. blockbusters, I want to laugh at times. You know, just as a tension, a circuit breaker. Didn't didn't find that in this film. Um, I, I think I'm in a real minority. Uh, we gave it four stars. We did, um, and I totally understand why people love it. Personally, I didn't feel that quite the same way it's very long as well which is it is it long it's 140 minutes okay. I, yeah i'm look I, I i'm probably not the right person to review it because i think the consensus certainly empire well, I'm, I'm glad i asked you to <laughs> point of view is 25 minutes ago very very much a four-star film um i would probably go three personally but I, come I back. he's gone why. rogue he's gone full rogue have i i tell you what though this yeah. feels about like an hour and a half shorter than the 147 minute transformers okay five. Fair so you know to give it its due yeah it's funny, it's the second blockbuster of the year that, that leans into its Apocalypse Now comparisons after Sky yes. Island. Yeah. I feel that's a dangerous film to wear as a on your sleeve because mm. it's such a brilliant film mm. and it's so out there and yeah. it's so visually its own thing that I just think any film would pale in comparison, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't I, know. I, well, I know there are the people, I know quite a few people who think that this is the not just the best blockbuster of the summer but the best film of the year so far I don't think it is that uh, I don't think it's the best blockbuster of the summer for for, for one thing um, but I do think it's the best of this new trilogy I will say though I don't particularly like the previous two films I thought the first I thought Rise I didn't like Rise at all uh, I thought it was a bit clumsy and a bit fan servicey and uh, uh, and it got better when Matt Reeves came on I thought Dawn was was pretty damn good. And what I think was really interesting about this is it almost takes you away from the human point of view completely. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the Spider Special. But I really admired that. I really thought it was a really brave decision. And uh, Andy Serkis is fantastic. Uh, and he is certainly worthy of being in the conversation for awards mm. when uh, when they're handed out at the end of the year. Can they just not give him a special Oscar? Like They probably just will. Just do that. Just a little Oscar with ping pong balls given to him by Joe Pesci. Here you are, you fuck! <laughs> Four stars then for War of uh, War for the Planet of the Apes. War four, yes. War for the Planet of the Apes, and uh, we'll finish off talking very quickly about Cars three. Now I haven't seen this yet, yeah. Chris. So um, it looks like a slightly darker entry in the Cars franchise. Is that 
So it is. There is blood everywhere. What? It's basically like the human centipede, but with animated cars. Oh no! I wasn't expecting that at all. It's really carburetted to carburetted. Chris, it's just it's not, no, it's not that. Oh, it's uh, it's 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 more of the same, really. It is a little bit darker. This so was we pick up a Lightning McQueen once again, voiced with uh, suitable wowness by uh, Owen Wilson. Uh, he says "wow" three times in this movie. I was counting. Uh, for the, he says for, it so well. For though. my new book, the Wow of Owen, and uh, uh, and you know he's he's at the top of his game, and then along comes a young buck played by Army Hammer, um, uh, and he plays, uh, I believe Jackson Storm is his name, and uh, and he is the new kid on the block, and he shunts Lightning McQueen off the podium, and Lightning McQueen's all like, "Hey man, wow, can't do that, wow!" And uh, so he goes off, and he learns how to recalibrate himself, and you know, to come to terms with this, and uh, and he he teams up with a female trainer, Cruz, and uh, you know, reveals hitherto unknown depths to her as well. Uh, I thought it was fine. It's okay. You know, I don't think these movies are the worst movies ever made, uh, uh, which I know a lot of people think that these movies signal the the, the moment when Pixar went from being the, the company that hits out of the park every single time to being the company that was obsessed with selling toys and sequels and, and whatnot. There's a little bit of that and there's still a little bit of knowingness about it. But thematically, this is a bit more interesting mm-hmm. and certainly the uh, the sort of glib spy uh, feature of of Cars Two. Yeah, Cars Two was was not yeah. not great. What I would say though, um, not yeah. funny. Oh, not funny. Hmm. At least not for me. Maybe kids will. Maybe Clemmy will love it. Maybe she'll be rolling in the aisles. Mm. Uh, but a little I, bit young to be rolling, Chris. No, she shouldn't roll. Shouldn't no, not rolling. Mm-mm. Okay, I'd be in trouble if that happens. She'll be she'll be pooing herself in the aisles potentially, just like I did. Yeah. Uh, so, so it's the end of the road, is it for lightning? Uh, I think I think the box office hasn't uh, been that. Gr- it's been good, but not great. But it doesn't. So. It's not supposed to be the end of a trilogy. Well, no, he dies at the end. He, uh, oh. he, you know, he gets. He gets. Does he? Yeah, he gets turned into scrap. Please it's, don't complain about us spoiling Cars awful. Three. I'm pretty sure that's it's not awful. the case. Last word. He just. It's like the mm. end of Christine. You just slow zoom in on this cube, and then all you hear from the wreckage is. <laughs> well, how many stars, Chris? Uh, I have no idea, Helen. <laughs> three stars. We gave it three stars, which I say is, is right, as we always say in the podcast. That is a recommendation. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Uh, join us next week for more film-related fun. We'll be bringing you the show from... England. San Diego. So, San Diego, right. Phil. Uh, we'll be doing it in Comic-Con. Oh, uh, yeah. boo. Sorry, Helen. Boo to you. Sorry. Um, so I'll be out there with Nick Semlian and James Blanco White and we will be bringing you the uh, the podcast we're not entirely sure what day it's going to be on so I will say it may not be on Friday uh, as per what? usual we may be bringing it to you on Saturday slackers no way slackers no yeah. way we're going to we're going to some regulations Chris we're going to play it by ear man we're going to play it by ear we're going to see how it goes we're going to see what the vibe is like out there in, in Comic Con but we're doing some very very exciting stuff so do keep uh, your ears and eyes peeled to our Twitter feed our Facebook feed we'll be doing some Facebook live stuff with some really interesting folks out there as well uh, and uh, yeah it's going to be very very exciting and then we're back to normal the week after that uh, and do keep your ears peeled to over uh, War of the Planet of the Apes supporters special will you be cosplaying as uh, performance <laughs> captured Joe Pesci because <laughs> that would be amazing gluing ping pong balls to myself oh, and just going around going fuck they fuck you at the Comic Con accreditation booth they fuck you at the Comic Con accreditation booth that's what I'd say probably best not Chris probably best not otherwise they'll they can't deny me my pass 
you fucks. Uh, should we? Are we going to have to like put the explicit yes. <laughs> warning yes. so on this week's yes. podcast? Yes. It's not me. It's Joe yes. Pesci. No, it's you, it's Chris. You, Chris. Okay. Uh, right. So that's it. Uh, it's uh, until next week. Okay. It's goodbye from Phil. Goodbye. How's it been, Phil? You've been. It's, been, it's really good yeah. to be back. Yeah. We're oh, rusty. I'm glad you've been a while. What? No, nothing, nothing. Oh, Chris. <laughs> mean. So mean. Uh, it's goodbye from Helen. To Lou. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to record a War for the Planet of the Apes Spoilers special uh, with Helen. And we have, Helen, I think 37 minutes in which to do it. No problem. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> All right, thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>